If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hey, I'm glad you're not dead. Me? Thank you. I, well, yeah, I, I work real hard not to be dead. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say you work real hard. No, that's true. I'm glad you're not dead, too, though. Thank you. Yeah. We had a bit of an incident here. Uh, so, of course, everything's weird right now. There's a lot going on. There's the quarantine or the stay-at-home order, I should say. Uh, we've been we've been here for three and a half weeks, I think. Something so, like something that. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and uh, of course, there's the the coronavirus, the the COVID, um, and then we had a freak snowstorm mid-April, uh, dumped like 10 to 12 inches of snow on us. We lost our power for a day. It was real traumatic. And two minor earthquakes. And two minor yeah, earthquakes. Right here in the state of Maine. That's right. It's the apocalypse. So uh, the kind of running joke is what's next, locust. So yesterday we had a windstorm uh, that brought down a... A giant tree directly next to our house that fell in between two other trees snapped in half. Half of the tree glanced off our house, demolished my compost bin. (laughs) And I was standing at the bathroom window, probably 10 feet from where the, the tree landed, just fresh out the shower. Uh, I had to get back in the shower. You were standing there in the noodle. Yeah, I was in the noodle. Uh, it was very scary. Very scary. And I was, I may have screeched out a little <laughs> bit. And you're like, what the hell's going on? And I came thundering into the bathroom and said, oh, you're in the noodle and totally forgot why I came in there. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a huge ancient oak. I mean, the thing was probably 90 feet high, a big old tree. And it just came right down and... Uh, Part of it hit our house. And and I noticed today that there's another tree that blew over, but it's hung up in some other trees just hanging over our house. Just so, waiting. So we have we have that to look forward to. <laughs> Hopefully we can get through these difficult times together, though. <laughs> no real damage to the house, though. Just scary. We're just really lucky that it didn't come through one of our windows. <laughs> we have much to be grateful for. Indeed, sir. Indeed. My list for today is 
not being decapitated by a falling tree. That Buddha bowl that I made, mm. that lemony dressing, that right. was so good. We oh, don't. also, there was a tick in our house today. Oh, God. I saw the first tick of the season. This is the end of, of civilization as we know it. <laughs> so I'm going to distract us from all of this hoopla with a story. According to legend, in 70 CE, Roman Emperor Titus ordered the city of Jerusalem sacked. He had his soldiers confiscate the two pillars from Solomon's temple, the Masonic Yaquin and Boaz, and bring them to Rome. Now, according to the Bible, Boaz and Yaquin were the two pillars which stood on the porch of Solomon's temple, which was the first temple in Jerusalem. They're sometimes used as symbols in Freemasonry and also the tarot. Also, my sister had a chocolate lab named Boaz. Now, they probably were not support structures. They were probably freestanding based on similar pillars found in uh, nearby temples at, at the time. Okay. Emperor Titus had these, according to legend, pillars removed from Jerusalem and brought back to Rome. And when in Rome, um, they were installed as the pillars of a pagan temple. And that temple was destroyed centuries later by the Christians. Uh, but these two pillars remained standing. So Christians built a church on the spot where the pillars were still intact. I love this repurposing. It's great. <laughs> the church, however, collapsed in an earthquake in the late 18th century. So the pillars were then cut up on the orders of Sabastino Marchisio, the patriarch of a piano-making family, and some of the wood he made into a piano. Oh, wow. It's called the Siena Pianoforte. More specifically, the soundboard in the piano. They used wood from these pillars. Kind of like we were thinking that we would use some of the wood from this downed tree right. to make some sort of like commemorative shelf. So Sabastino drew up the designs for the piano. This is according to Atlas Obscura and Wikipedia. He drew up the designs for the piano and started on it, but died before he could finish. His son took up the task, but then he died before he could finish it. Oh, no. Then Sabastino's grandson took over the task, but like his father, couldn't devote as much time to, his, time to it as he would have liked, and he died before finishing the project. Oh, no. Finally, his son, Sabatino's great-grandson, Nicodemo Ferry, finished the piano while his cousin, Carlos Bartolose, carved the outside with beautiful, intricate work. The finished piano was considered the pride of Siena. What is this, like 200 years later? Like 100 years later? What is this, like it, 100 years later? It, no, about about 25 years. About 25. Wow. To, to make the piano. Oh, they were pumping him out. Well, his great-grandson? Yeah, his great-grandson. Yeah, well, oh, not pianos. You mean children. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Well, well, he was pretty elderly, and his son was pretty elderly, <laughs> okay. I guess. And I mean, it's mathematically possible. The Siena Pianoforte, it's also called the Immortal Piano. And the harp of King David, its, uh, its timber is similar to both a piano and a harpsichord. It's kind of like a, a combination of the two things. Okay. And also due to the legend that it was partially built from wood that came from the pillars of the Temple of Solomon, it's considered the spiritual descendant of the harp of David. Most critics say it's best for playing works of art like Mozart. After his grandson put the finishing touches on the instrument, he then gave it to his sister, Rebecca, who lived further south in Siena. There, the piano became something of a local attraction and was regularly played in public performances. 
It was favored for its unique sound. And you want to hear what it sounds like? Yes, please. It's almost tinny, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's definitely a cross between a piano and a harpsichord sound with maybe a little music box mixed in. Yeah, it's yeah, a, it's got a real delicate kind of uh, air... Uh, spatial... Uh, lightness, like uh, a... Yeah. Del- I keep saying delicate, but it sounds... Yes. Yeah. Yep. It sounds good. Neat. Yeah, and they say that it's because of the soundboard that was made from the wood from these ancient pillars from Solomon's temple. Okay. That's that's the legend. The Marquis of Siena thought that the piano was such a, a special sound that it deserved a more special look. So around 1860, two artists were hired to give the exterior uh, an upgrade. One of them was, again, Nicodemo Ferry. So the work ultimately spanned four generations of the same family. Now, according to The Piano, an encyclopedia, the finished product, still a fully functional piano, was adorned with carvings of the Ten Commandments, um, about 20 different cherubs, and the likeness of George Friedrich Handel, and also Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, among other several, several other uh, composers. It represented Siena in the 1867 Paris World's Fair. Oh, wow. After the 1867 Paris World's Fair, it was then gifted to the Italian crown prince Umberto. Franz Litz played the instrument at the prince's wedding. Wow. As Umberto later ascended to the throne, the instrument became known as the king's piano and was played at the palace by members of the royal family. Also courtiers and renowned musicians. One musician who longed to play it was Mattis Yanowski. He was a Russian Jewish refugee whose playing had impressed Umberto. The king had told Yanowski about the piano, but he was assassinated before Yanowski could come and play in the court. So he never got his chance. Mm -hmm. It was something that he really, really wanted to do. He was haunted by this missed opportunity. So as he grew older, he urged his grandson, Avnar Karmi, himself a budding musician, to one day try to play the piano in his honor. This sounds like the premise of a movie. It does. This would make a great movie. Right? So Carmi tried, as far as we know, but he lacked the connections to get an invitation to the Italian court. And then he had bigger problems to deal with because the Nazis came to town in, uh, in 1940. You know, and that kind of upset everything, yeah. I would think. And that is when the immortal piano, the Siena Piano Forte, disappeared. Thank goodness. Because Nazis stole everything. They stole the piano. No! Yes. Yep. I was hoping someone like made a Hit it. shelter yep. for it or something. Nope. Ah, Nazis! The Nazis looted many prizes and valuable works of art, and it appeared that the immortal piano was one of them. And it seemed like Carmi would never get his chance to fulfill the promise to his grandfather of playing the uh, Siena pianoforte. Again, according to Atlas Obscura, a couple of years passed. In 1942, after the German forces were driven out of El Alamein in northern Egypt, Carmi was employed by the British Army to accompany them to North Africa to assist in a landmine sweeping assignment, which that must have sucked. Yeah. They go out into the desert with these metal detectors, and they're sweeping the desert sand, looking for unexploded munitions. And as they were working, one particular grid quadrant 
every time they passed the uh, metal detector over it, they could hear music coming out of the ground. Stop it. So they dug, and buried beneath the sand was a piano encased in plaster. And its strings had vibrated in response to the magnets of the minesweepers. Oh my gosh. For reasons nobody could really understand, the Nazis had lugged, first of all, they encased it in plaster, and then lugged the instrument through the Libyan desert all the way to El Alamein before abandoning it upon retreat. Carmi's like, oh wow, cool, a piano. But it's encased in plaster, the cabinet is, so he didn't know what it was, even though this was the instrument that his grandfather had asked him to play in his honor. That doesn't, how is that even possible? I, I don't know. I don't know if it was curiosity, appreciation, or sheer indifference. The British opted to not destroy the instrument. They lugged it themselves to Tel Aviv. Carmi decided the piano must have had some value. So he transported it to another station about 200 miles. A British officer pronounced that it was rubbish and consigned it to a burn pile. But, but Carmi objected because he loved pianos and he cleaned some of the sand out of the strings and strummed them. And the officer agreed that uh, it sounded pretty nice and he relented. The piano was then restored hastily by Carmi. It was used to entertain troops. For a, by, by a traveling show that took it all over the desert, then to Sicily and Italy and on to Palestine, which w was not yet Israel, still encased in plaster. He did not know it was the Siena Piano Forte. How do you play a piano that's encased in plaster? I'm confused. Well, the cabinet, the, the cabinet work was encased in plaster. So it was just the, the keys, keys that were yeah, available to him? the keys were available. How do you not chip that shit off? <laughs> How do you not... But I have to know what's inside. Carmi never got to play it. He restored it or helped get it working again, and then they took it, and he lost contact. After the traveling show broke up in Palestine, the piano was sold to a junk dealer in Tel Aviv. He tried to get it properly tuned, but no one understood the strange action of this particular mechanism. In disgust, he left it in a junkyard. Oh, From there, the piano passed through several owners, but none discovered its secret. When Carmi left the military, he retired to Israel, told his wife he wanted to reopen his piano shop. His wife and children then took him to see a piano that was simply sitting in the street badly in need of restoration of a first job. He was shocked to see the old plaster no. monstrosity he had Stop rescued it. in North Africa three decades earlier. He took it back to his shop and saw that no one had tuned it because they didn't know how. One story says that a truck driver delivered the piano and when paying he and Carmi argued the driver began banging his fist on the plaster piano and some of the uh, plaster became dislodged one crack opened another and another and within a short while it all fell away leaving the true piano visible an amazing ornate old thing excitedly Carmi ran to his desk withdrew a photo of the Siena piano forte that he'd kept all these years and recognized that it was the very same instrument. Stop. That's unreal. And he made that, that delivery truck driver go away, right? <laughs> yeah, he was like, yeah, 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 yeah right. Here's your money. Get out of here. <laughs> this piano has been played some, by some of the greats. It was shown at Steinway Hall in the United States. Some of the greatest pianists in history have played this piano. 
Carmi and his wife wrote a book about the piano titled The Immortal Piano. His daughter finally sold it in 1996 to a private collector for $1 million. Wow. The most recent owner put the instrument up for auction just this year. In fact, it went. It was on eBay in January of 2020. Wow. Listed with a buy it now price of $2 million. But apparently it did not sell uh, because it was listed for auction in Israel in mid-March of 2020. It was expected to, to fetch a million dollars U.S. I couldn't find an actual amount that it sold for, but speculation is it was somewhere in the $300,000 range. That's so, nuts. Yeah, so there's there's the story of the immortal piano, the Sienna Piano Forte. And again, this comes mostly from an article from Atlas Obscura, as well as some details uh, from Wikipedia. What a roller coaster. Isn't that something? That was incredible. That's I, I thought that was an amazing story. The odds of those things coming together like they did. And even though the part of it being built from the pillars of Solomon's temple, that's legend. Mm. And that's, there's no way to really prove that. It is possible, according to Atlas Obscura, because... All of the things that uh, that they say happened, there is documentation of it being moved from here to there, mm-hmm. and then this being built, and you know, sure. whatever. So it is theoretically possible that that that's where that wood came from, but um, it is considered legend. The rest of it is true. Wow. And now that thing in the middle. Today's thing in the middle: five breakfast cereals that didn't make it, and we're glad. From Ula.com, number five, Wackies. Starting in 1965, Wackies promoted banana-flavored marshmallows as if it was a good thing. Number four, Fruit Brute. Fruit Brute was another addition to the monster mascot General Mills yeah. line, so yeah. like the Count Chocula, et cetera, et cetera. Yummy mummy. Uh, but the breakfast-loving werewolf. Not such a great way to get kids to want breakfast. He was too violent and scared children, so nobody wanted to eat the cereal. (laughs) Number three, OKs. The only thing OK about OKs was that it had cut out prizes on the box, each of them a Scottish bodybuilder. That's awesome. (laughs) I bet those are collectibles. I bet they are now, yeah. Yeah. Number two, Quisp. I love Quisp. Quisp was the alien mascot of the 60s serial duo of Quisp and Quake. Uh, it was a sweet flavor, but uh, the cereal, quote, can't be kept down. And that could have referred to millions of young stomachs trying to process a cereal whose only true success was a vintage set of online auction limited edition toys. But you liked Quisp. I did. Quisp was just Captain Crunch in a different shape. And the whole Quisp versus Quake thing, it was exactly the same cereal, just two different shapes. Quisp was flying saucers. Quake was little gears. Now, you think Captain Crunch will cut your mouth up. You ought to try Captain Crunch shaped like little gears. (laughs) I actually found a box of Quisp for you for, uh, I don't know, your birthday or something a few years ago. And your reaction when you opened it was the best thing I've ever seen. And then I immediately sat down on the floor, cross-legged, ate a bowl of it, and watched Bugs Bunny cartoons on YouTube. Truth. And finally, Crunchy Logs. Sounds more like a medical condition. (laughs) Indeed. Some sort of a lower intestinal thing. Mom, I've I've got got the the Crunchy crunchy logs. Logs. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. 
You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The podcast that's more fun than a barrel full of monkeys. Okay, that was an expression before animal rights became a thing. Oh, great. Now Kat's really pissed because she thinks we're promoting animal abuse and exploitation. And we're not. And now Jethro's in a weird spot because we met him first, so he... You know what? Just fuck it. This is The Box of Oddities. Curtis left us this message. So I'm at work listening to this episode. It was a door-to-door monkey salesman. And for some reason, it started skipping on my phone. Well, only part of it. When Jethro says the phrase, showing his penis... It just starts repeating that over and over again, (laughs) showing his penis, showing his penis, showing his penis. Good thing I was the only one working in the kitchen at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, That's amazing. I planned it that way, Curtis. Thank you for reaching out with that delightful story. That's the kind of thing we need. I remember an old friend of mine who worked in radio way back in the old days, told me a story about how in on Sunday mornings they had to play religious programming and it was like about a half an hour show and it came in on an LP like a like an album an old record album mm-hmm. and you put the uh, the needle down on it and it would play and he figured I got a half an hour I'm going to run over to Dunkin Donuts and get something to eat so he runs across the street and they have the radio on at Dunkin Donuts and apparently the record was skipping and it was just going Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah, he got fired. Anyway, what you got for me? What, what you, what, what you, what you got for me? What, 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 what you got for me? Whenever you're ready. I played the what you got for me thing. (laughs) That means I'm ready. (laughs) All right. We're going to talk about Albert Einstein's eyeballs. Okay. April 17th, 1955, Albert Einstein experienced internal bleeding caused by the rupture of an abdominal aortic aneurysm. He actually refused surgery, saying, I want to go when I want. It's tasteless to prolong life artificially. I've done my share. It's time to go, and I will go elegantly. I think he did do his share. I love him. So he took a draft of a speech that he was working on for a television appearance commemorating the state of Israel's seventh anniversary with him to the hospital so he could work on it while he was dying. Uh Um, But he wasn't able to get it finished before he did pass away at the age of 76, continuing to work up until the point that pretty much he died. But before we go on to talk about what happened after he died, let's talk a little bit about Einstein. Of course, Albert Einstein uh, was a German-born theoretical physicist who developed the theory of relativity. He was born in March of 1879. He's best known to the general public for his E equals MC square formula. Einstein started teaching himself calculus at the age of 12. And as a 14-year-old, he said he had pretty much mastered uh, differential calculus. In 1905, which is called his miracle year, he published four groundbreaking papers, which attracted the attention of the academic world. And uh, that's where he first outlined the theory of the 
photoelectric effect. The second paper explained Brownian motion. The third paper introduced special relativity. And the fourth was about mass energy equivalence. So that year, he was awarded a PhD by the University of Zurich. He was 26. Yeah. He received the 1921 Nobel Prize in Physics for his services to theoretical physics, and especially for his discovery of the law of the photoelectric effect, which is a pivotal step in the development of quantum theory. But there are some things that we don't know that much about when it comes to Einstein. Of course, it's his achievements and the things that he contributed to science that we should be talking about, not this other stuff, but the other stuff's kind of interesting too. So here we go. So from an early age, Albert Einstein loathed nationalism of any kind. He didn't want to be German anymore. So he renounced being a German citizen. Uh, He said he was a citizen of the world and was officially stateless until he became a Swiss citizen in 1901. According to National Geographic, in 1933, the FBI began keeping a dossier on Einstein. (laughs) Shortly before his third trip to the U.S., this file would grow into almost 1,500 pages of documents uh, focused on the the fact that he was friends with socialists. And there was some concern that, you know, you know, the the big communism fear. J. Edgar Hoover even recommended that Einstein be kept out of the states by the Alien Exclusion Act, but he was overruled by the U.S. State Department. Hmm. J. Edgar Hoover also wanted to keep John Lennon out of the United States, along with Richard Nixon. Very similar reasons. In fact, did you know, during that time period, the title of the uh, current Elton John album of the time was a reference to Nixon And that album was Madman Across the Water. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you know that? I did not know that. Okay. Back to uh, Albert Einstein, which, by the way, was the real name for actor Albert Brooks. Albert Brooks is a treasure. Defending Your Life is a great movie. Watch it. It's true. Meryl Streep is a treasure. My mom calls her Merle. It's so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Every time she references Meryl Streep, she calls her Merle. Merle Streep, as though her name is M-E-R-L, Merle. She watches a lot of her films on Netflix. Uh Anyway, Einstein's eyes. Einstein anticipated that he would win the Nobel Prize. And so he promised that to his then wife if she would agree to grant him a divorce. That award ended up being about $32,000, which was more than 10 times the annual salary of the average professor at that time. So she made out okay. I guess. Um, He really wanted to divorce her so he could (laughs) marry his first cousin. Okay, that sounds familiar. Yeah, the second Mrs. Einstein was Elsa. Her last name was also Einstein. Well, that's saved on monograms and address labels. Absolutely. A few days after the first president of Israel died in 1952, Einstein was asked if he would accept the position of being the second president of Israel. He was 73 at the time, and he declined the offer, uh, stating that he lacked the natural aptitude and experience to deal properly with people. It's, it's kind of like what Oprah said when they were trying to push her to run for president. You remember that? She goes, no, that's just not in my makeup. I I know what my limitations are. (laughs) 
I kind of always refer back to that quote, I wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would have me. I always think that the kind of people who want to be president oftentimes aren't necessarily the people who would be best at being president. That's often the case. That was, uh, was that Groucho Marx? It sounds like Groucho, doesn't it? That said that, yeah. So part of Einstein's charm was his disheveled look. He had that crazy uncombed hair and... Another one of the fun little quirks about him was that he never wore socks. Really? Yeah. He said that he were, they were a pain because they often got holes in them. So why <laughs> wear them at all? See, he was thinking at a whole different level. He was on a whole different level. <laughs> anyway, he has kicked it. It's 1955, and we're at Princeton Hospital. And Thomas Harvey, who was a pathologist of that hospital, decided he was going to go ahead with an autopsy. Einstein had pretty specific instructions for his remains, cremate them and scatter them secretly so that people couldn't, like, come and worship at his grave. He was very concerned about uh, what he called idolaters. Mm. He didn't want that. It was just, I'm not here anymore. Let's all move on. hmm?" That's admirable. Thomas Harvey did not have permission to perform this autopsy, nor did he have the legal right to remove and keep the brain. Yeah, this is weird. So when it came to light a little bit later that he had, in fact, performed an autopsy and uh, snatched that brain right out of Einstein's head, he had to go to... Einstein's son, Hans Albert, and kind of get a retroactive blessing, which his son, I guess, gave with some, I mean, what are you going to do now? It's already been done. He wasn't Mm. thrilled about it, but he did have some stipulations that any investigations would be conducted solely in the interest of science and that the results, if any, of interest would be published in reputable scientific journals. So Harvey preserved Einstein's brain. And and let's keep in mind that Thomas Harvey was not a brain specialist. So what, he just scrape it out like it was like a watermelon rind? <laughs> Something like that. So he was, I mean, he was a doctor, but he didn't have special mm. brain. Mm-hmm. Knowingness. Knowing knees. He wasn't <laughs> a, a big brain guy. Man. He just didn't have the expertise to undertake the studies that he had proposed to Albert Einstein's son. It was kind of shitty. Yeah. While he was in there, he also removed Einstein's eyeballs, which he then gifted to Einstein's eye doctor, Henry Abrams. Within months of this autopsy, Harvey was dismissed from Princeton Hospital for refusing to surrender this specimen. After he lost his job, he took the brain to a Philadelphia hospital where a technician sectioned it into over 200 blocks and embedded the pieces using a variety of methods. Harvey gave some of the pieces to Harry Zimmerman who was his, like, mentor, I guess. And then he placed the remainder in two jars, which he stored in the basement of his home in Princeton. So Einstein's brain spent some time in a University of Pennsylvania lab in jars in Harvey's basement. Uh, and when Harvey moved to the Midwest uh, for a period, he his brain bits lived in a cider box stashed under a beer cooler, according to ABC News. 
this guy moved around a bunch, like six times. And every time he took the brain pieces with him, uh, even after he lost his medical license, he just kept, he kept lugging around these brain bits. Please tell me that they didn't end up in a yard sale. No, they did not. Uh, in the early 1990s, Harvey returned to Princeton. In 1997, he embarked on a cross-country road trip with a freelance magazine writer named Michael Paterniti. Harvey wanted to meet Einstein's granddaughter in California. And so they took this trek together. The writer was eager to, you know, write about this weird shit that was going down. <laughs> And did Einstein's granddaughter know that some rando was going to show up with Poopa's brain? Unclear. Uh, they just packed it in the trunk of Harvey's Buick Skylark and oh made God. their way across the country. Wow. Harvey had toyed with the idea of giving the brain parts to the granddaughter. Uh, he even accidentally left it there for a period of time, but he went back and got it because she didn't want it. It wasn't until 1985 that Harvey was contacted by a Berkeley researcher and she'd read about the brain and the guy that had it and thought, okay, here's an opportunity for me to do some work and this might be a good boost for the study that I want to do because if I can do a study involving Albert Einstein's brain, that's going to be a much more interesting story than a study involving anyone else's brain. Right. For sure. Pretty much anyone. In history. So she was conducting an experiment that involved brains that had access to stimulating environments. Um, so she was using rats. And if you had like a very sterile environment versus if you had a very interactive, sure. exciting environment, what how your brains would react. Mm -hmm. And basically, it didn't work out great. Her tests were flawed. Uh, they were slammed for irregularities. And the preparation techniques weren't great. Uh, plus, her reporting wasn't great. So she had something like 26 pieces of the brain that she was working with, and then only reported the results of four that she had involved in the study. So that shows, I mean, she basically left out the pieces of brain that didn't behave the way that she wanted yeah, them to. Very selective. Yeah. So Dr. Harvey had what's left of this brain and he was looking for people to do studies on it, but he was also very protective of it. He wanted it to be used for very specific purposes, but also didn't want to give it away. It was just a very weird relationship. And so after many, many years, Harvey d eventually donated the remainder of Einstein's brain to the pathology department at Princeton Hospital. Which is probably where it should have been the entire time. The entire time. Uh, the parts of it that didn't make it there were the parts that had already been lent out for that scientific study. And pieces that you can see at the Mutter Museum. They're 20 microns thick and stained with Cressel violet. They're preserved in glass slides on display uh, that he did donate before donating the rest back to the Princeton Hospital. I don't remember seeing that. I don't remember seeing that at the Mutter either. To be fair, there was a lot going on in that museum, and it would mm -hmm. have been very easy to overlook, mm -hmm. which overlooking Einstein's brain. What? <laughs> but there was a lot going yeah. on there, yeah. some of which made me a little sick to my tum-tum. Mm -hmm. So, And 
finally, Einstein's eyeballs are kept in a safety deposit box in New York City to this day. Word is that uh, occasionally there's discussion of them going up for auction, but uh, they live you can't, you should, in... <laughs> is it legal to sell body parts? Not sure. Like that? Not sure. I mean, that's a gray area. Maybe gray matter is how you wanted to go with that Ooh, joke. What? Huh? 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 Anyway, Einstein's eyeballs, which in this here I wrote Einstein's edge balls, which... <laughs> a whole different thing. Yep. Yeah. Well, at least, you know, they're they're being kept safely in a safe deposit box as opposed to hanging from somebody's rearview mirror. Right. Or in a cigar box under someone's cooler <laughs> in a yep. basement. Yep. So that's the um, remarkable travels of Einstein's brain. The end. I just can't help but think that if Einstein was like, you know, in heaven looking down on what was going on, like in the late 80s, early 90s, thinking, really? A Buick Skylark. I hate the West Coast. Thanks again for hanging out with us, you beautiful freak. We uh, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your week to spend a little bit of it with us. And we look forward to hanging out with you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.